And we're going to be uh, starting in chapter 5 of Mark at verse 21. As you're getting there, it's probably worth saying, you know, this passage is probably familiar. I don't want to assume that everyone in this room is a Christian or, you know, has read through the Gospels often. Um, But for those of us, you know, who are familiar with um, Jesus's ministry, I mean, these miracles are are talked about in in several of the the gospel accounts. I want to encourage us as we read this and as we hear about this to to try to see what's happening with fresh eyes. Uh, There's a, a danger of growing too familiar with the gospel accounts of, of, of Jesus. Uh, author, pastor, former pastor, uh, Eugene Peterson, he talks about the danger of growing too familiar with the gospel so that it ceases to trouble and amaze us the way that it was intended to do. He says this, We treat the Bible and we treat ministers so nicely. No one seems to think the Bible means what it says. When we hear kingdom of God, nobody gets apprehensive as if we had just announced that a powerful army is poised on the border ready to invade. But that is exactly how we should feel. That the the miracles that we see in the Gospels is Mark's announcement, it's God's announcement that his powerful army of redemption and love is poised at the border's of our small little lives, ready to invade with goodness and grace and mercy. And our current way of living does not stand a chance. So would you stand with me if you are able and hear God's word, his troubling, amazing word in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace 
and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, these are your words given to us, and every single one of them is trustworthy and true. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for it. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us new, real, living hearts that can believe? We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Um, once again, Paul said he very kindly introduced me. My name is Sam Kennedy. I am the pastor for Reformed University Fellowship at UNCW, uh, which is a college ministry uh, from the Presbyterian Church in America denomination. And so my job is to go to the campus of UNC uh, Wilmington and to pastor students. Uh, to meet with them, to answer their questions about the faith, uh, to build a group of students that are reaching out to other students and uh, grow in their faith and exercise their gifts for ministry. And it is a wonderful job that I get to do. And I'm really, really grateful um, for this church's partnership and support of us, both financially and then just personally, the encouragement that Paul and everyone here uh, gives to me regularly. <laughs> um, just this morning, I, was, I got an email from Trevor Molenhoff, who's our representative on the missions team, just asking how they could be praying for us. So we feel so loved and supported by y'all. Uh, when you think about us, like when you pray for us, um, what we're trying to do in RUF, very simply, is to reach students with the gospel. So if a student doesn't know Jesus, if a student doesn't have uh, awareness of the Bible, doesn't um, doesn't have access to the good news that God loves, 
um, them and is saving and rescuing sinners. So we want to connect them to that message and then not just reaching students, but also equipping them for a lifetime of service in the church. So our goal is, is not just that students would come to a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, but that they would grow in their gifts uh, in ministry, that they would grow as um, young men and women uh, loving God and serving him in the context of the local church. And so sometimes people ask me, um, well, how's, how's it going? How are things happening on campus? How, how, how's RUF doing? And the typical line that an RUF campus minister gives is, ask me in 20 years. Because we'll really know um, what God has been doing 20 years from now uh, when we see pastors, mothers, fathers, church leaders, elders, deacons, Bible study leaders, VBS leaders, um, Sunday school teachers, all those things in local churches all around our country. So that's my hope and my prayer, and you can pray for that uh, for us. You know, as Paul said, I used to be on uh, staff at Christ Community, and one of my favorite things that we used to do was the staff day of prayer. I think y'all probably still do it. I hope, I pray that you still do it, because it's the best. And so we would gather here in um, the sanctuary, and it would be empty, and someone would kind of lead us through a little bit of liturgy, and then we'd pray for all the members in the congregation, and we'd pray through the different ministries, we'd pray through different challenges in the world and, you know, in, in the city, and it was just such a beautiful and powerful time. And, and one time I remember in particular, um, I was leading us through this, um, this passage in Ephesians 3, where, where the Apostle Paul is praying for the church. And it ends with this doxology in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 3. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And as we are sitting here praying over that, that phrase, able to do far more abundantly, then all we ask or think just sat in my heart. And I remember uh, Kelly Spatel was here and we were praying and we, you know, we're praying back this passage, just confessing, God, we don't believe that you really can do more than we've seen already. Like, God, I just don't, I, I have such small thoughts about you and such small, low expectations about what you want to do in this church, about what you want to do in our lives, about you want, what you want to do in the world. And it was just so convicting to ask, that God was basically saying, ask me for more. See if I won't do more. See if I won't do something even deeper, even greater. See if I won't surprise you. And so I just wonder for you this morning, do you feel that? Do you feel that tension? Do you feel that challenge? Even as we're reading these accounts in the Gospel of Mark, do you think, yeah, but Jesus couldn't do something like that for me? Yeah, but God wouldn't want to show up in my life that way. Or do you believe that he is actually able and willing to do far more, far more abundantly than you could ask or even think to ask. And I, I just wonder where in your life do you need more of Jesus? <laughs> where in your life, like what if you, if Jesus were walking 
by right now, what would you be asking him for? And what I think Mark wants to show us today is what it looks like to come to Jesus in need, to come to Jesus with a request, to come to Jesus with a burden on our hearts. And what he wants to show us is what it looks like to approach the King of glory as he is walking by in faith, believing that he actually is ready and able to help and to heal and to restore the dead and the dark and the broken parts inside of us and in this world. So that's what we're going to look at. What does it look like to come to Jesus, to approach Jesus in faith, believing that he can do what he says he can do? And we're going to look at two test cases on how to approach Jesus, a bleeding woman and also a dying little girl. And I'm going to look at these two test cases from two different angles. One, I want to look at um, the objects of grace. And number two, I want to look at the experience of faith. So first, objects of grace. What does it look like to approach Jesus believing that we are objects of his grace, of coming to him as objects of his favor? What does it look like? What is Mark trying to tell us about grace and how it operates in the lives of these two young women? Grace, approaching God on the basis of grace, I think, means approaching on the basis of our relationship to Jesus, not on the basis of our religious resume. You know, approaching Jesus based upon something in him, not something in us. Grace, this attitude of God toward needy people, is the opposite of desert. You know what dessert is? I mean, that, that, that phrase, we don't use that old word that often. It's the opposite of deserving. You know, like if you get dessert at the end of the meal, why do they give you dessert? They call it dessert because, oh, you're a good little boy. You're a good little girl. You finished your meal. Now you deserve to have a treat. That's why they call it dessert. When someone gets what's coming to them, we call it they're just desserts, right? What goes around comes around. Grace is the opposite of dessert. Grace is what comes to you is the opposite of what you earned. When God comes to you, not on the basis of something you've earned, but on the basis of something in him. So let's just look at these these two, um, two young women for a second. You've got, first let's look at this little dying girl. We don't hear much about her. We hear more about her father and her family background. We hear that her dad, Jairus, is the ruler of the synagogue, uh, which basically means that he's kind of like the bishop. You know, like he's not just a, a religious figure, but he's like a powerful religious figure. You know, so he's got, um, he, he's kind of got his hands in all the different happenings at the synagogue, and the synagogue is also the center of society. So he is like a combination of the bishop and the mayor and the aldermen. 
You know, he's kind of like got his hands in every little thing that's happening. So this is a powerful man. This is a religiously connected man, uh, probably a very wealthy man. And so this young girl has all that status that's associated with her powerful father. So just thinking in terms of resume, I mean, she's like right at the top. You know, if applying to, you know, religious school, she'd be like Ivy League. Uh, based on you know, her father's connections, her father's position. Contrast that with this woman. The only thing we hear about the woman is that she's been suffering from this bleeding condition for about 12 years, which may, you know, depending on her age, be about half her life. Now, if you've read any of the Old Testament, especially the book of Le- Leviticus, you know that any kind of like feminine bleeding renders you um, religiously unclean. So you're thought of as a religious outcast. Uh, you're, you're put outside of the community. So, I mean, talk about social distancing for a couple months. Think about social distancing for, for 12 years and what that does uh, to your mental health, <laughs> what that does um, just... to to everything uh, about you. So she's cut off, certainly from family, uh, cut off from any kind of community except whatever other outcasts, you know, lepers and the blind and the lame and the prostitutes and, and, you know, all the people that, and like thieves that probably live outside the city with her. So completely disconnected. And also uh, probably because of Um, the fact that she's been cut off not just from family, but also from uh, the worship community. She can't enter the temple. Has this uh, deep feeling, I would imagine, God has cursed me. God has forgotten me. God has cast me out. And so you've got both of these people uh, coming to Jesus and if you were going to kind of, um, you know, make them both take tickets, kind of like at a deli and wait in line, who's the one who would be at the first of the line? I mean, Jairus's daughter, 100%, right? Be, I mean, not, not only, he gets there first, he asks first. But based upon everything else, the urgency of the situation, right? My, my little daughter is dying right now. She's at the point of death. Uh, based upon his connections, based upon his influence, based upon everything that anyone in the society would have said about him if, they, if Jesus had just kind of thrown it to the crowd and said, okay, well, who do I heal first? Everyone would have said, well, Jairus' daughter, of course. But do you notice what Jesus does? He makes Jairus wait. And I just think that's beautiful and confusing But what he's showing us is that God is no respecter of persons. That when we come to him, anything that we think would enable us to curry favor with him. Anything that we might use to kind of say, well, well, listen to me, God, because look what I've done for you. Or look who I am. Or look what people say about me. Jesus says, you can't approach me based on any of that. You have to lay all of that down. And so these two 
needy families come to Jesus and all they bring to him is their desperation. And I think that's what Jesus is showing, is Jairus, you're no better. Your family is no better than this woman. I'm relating to you both exactly in the same way, which is on the basis of grace, not on the basis of your record. I'm meeting you precisely at the point of your desperation, not at the place of your strength, not at the place of your uh, your influence. God's grace is God's tendency to shower favor on undeserving persons and desperate situations and to put it right at the place of their deepest need. And I think coming to Jesus as an object of grace, seeing ourselves as an object of grace, removes any kind of boasting for what we've done, but it also removes the shame and the stigma of all of our failures. Because it's precisely our neediness, it's precisely our failures that draws him to us. Uh, In Ephesians, Paul says this, that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. But if we boast, we'll boast in our weakness. We'll boast in our neediness. And so both of these figures, both of these people are coming to Jesus and they're having to come simply as needy people, simply as desperate people in a desperate situation that are helpless. And so this is hard for us to do, is it not? I mean, it's hard even to just focus on the difficult things in our life for five minutes, uh, let alone to talk to God or to talk to other people about them. But I think if we could see ourselves as God sees us, as objects of grace, uh, not as people who are supposed to be, you know, drumming up merit for ourselves, that we could come to God without shame, without fear. Because it's recognizing that our neediness is the very thing that draws him to us. I mean, that, that wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, that everyone's been reading, that y'all are passing out. I mean, that was the thing that so impressed me about the book, is God saying, bring it on, screw-ups. Bring it on, losers. <laughs> bring it on, failures. I want to know you. I'm doing something beautiful in your life. Um, there's a, a thing that we do with uh, some of our students that we print out for them. It's this... Uh, weekly prayer guide called the Daily Prayer Project that a church up in D.C. makes for us. And every month on the cover of this prayer booklet, they they have a different piece of artwork. And um, on the most recent one, there's this really striking photo of an elderly woman. It's from this um, Brazilian artist named Aileen Bryant. So this elderly woman, she's raised up her hands in prayer. And she's just kind of looking off into the distance in kind of desperation. Uh, At least that's what it looks like to me. Probably reading my own stuff into it. Um, But it's this very stark black and white photo of this woman, of this elderly woman. But what the artist does with her work is she takes these very simple, very stark black and white photos and she prints them out and then she embroiders flowers on them. And the flowers are like these electric, beautiful, beautiful colors. And, and so this woman who's just kind of sitting there uh, crying out to God, it looks like, 
is covered, you know, like her shoulders and chest are just covered with all this like beautiful, miraculous, flowery growth that the artist has stitched there. And it's funny, like I was reflecting on it the other morning and I thought, that woman doesn't know how beautiful she looks. I mean, there's no way she could know, right? Because from the vantage point of the picture, she's kind of living in gray, black and white world and she's just going, gosh, I need you. But then from the outside, the artist is doing something. Like he's weaving something into her life. He's, he's putting beauty and honor and glory on this very ordinary drab picture. But he's the only one who really has eyes to see it. And so I wonder in your life, where are those drab, dreary, kind of gray places that you just feel like, God, there's nothing good that can come of this? And is it possible that that is the exact place that God is using as the backdrop and the canvas for something amazing that he wants to do? For something that's going to show his artistic, uh, creative genius in a way that something else wouldn't be able to? I think that's what it means to come to God believing that we are, in fact, objects of his grace. So we approach Jesus, you know, trying to see ourselves with his eyes, seeing, seeing what he might be doing, what he says about the circumstances in our life, not just what we see from our perspective. We come to Jesus on the basis of his grace, but we want to come to him in faith. Uh, we're saved, Paul says, uh, by grace through faith. And so the second half of this is just we're looking at what faith looks like, what, what the experience of coming to Jesus in faith might, looks, might look like. And both of the families, both of these situations involve faith being tested, faith being tried. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote where he says, uh, courage isn't just simply one virtue among many virtues, but it is the form of every single virtue at the place where it is being tested the most. Let me say that again. Courage isn't just like one virtue out of many different virtues, but courage is the virtue that you need when any other thing in your life is being tested. At that moment where you have to stick to humility, you have to stick to kindness, you have to stick to faith, you have to stick to patience, what you need is you need courage. And I think faith, what we're going to see here is, 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 is Mark wants us to see that, that faith is that, that spiritual virtue at the point of testing, at the sticking point. So I want to ask, okay, what does faith actually feel like? What does it feel like to put your faith in Jesus based on what we're seeing uh, here? It's interesting, in verse 34, Jesus says something to this woman that, that I think is remarkable. And I, it made me ask a lot of questions. He says in verse 34, woman, your faith has made you well. And as I'm looking back in the story, I, I, I want to ask, okay, so where was the moment where she had faith? 
Like, was it um, when she's like, you know, out in the trash heap outside of town and she said, well, I heard Jesus is coming to town. I'm, I'm going to get up and try to go and follow him in this crowd. Is that the moment where she has faith? Is uh, the moment where she has faith, is that when um, she kind of pushes through the crowd and, and risks, you know, being found out and called out for, you know, kind of uh, sacrificially contaminating everyone? Um, is it when she reaches and, and grabs him for healing? Is that the moment she has faith? Or was faith in that moment where she's sitting at the edge of the crowd and she knows Jesus is calling for her when he's saying, who touched me? Who was it that touched me? And she has the choice. Am I going to stay back? Or am I going to fall forward? Or is faith the moment where she falls on her knees and confesses not just that she, you know, touched his robe, but she tells him the whole story, the whole shameful, hard story of her entire life. Is that when she had faith? Which, which one was it? And I guess I would say yes. It, it's all of it. <laughs> What about the man? What about Jairus? Where do we see faith with him? I mean, his daughter, forget about it. I mean, she, all she does is she's just lying there dead. Um, <laughs> there is a lot we can learn from that, though. <laughs> um, but what, what, what about for Jairus? Where do we see him exercising faith? There's this amazing thing that... Um, Jesus says to him, and it's in, it's in verse 35, it's right after he speaks to the woman. You know, Jairus hears this report that his daughter is dead, that it's no use. She's beyond saving, right? And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Only believe. In English, it's hard to see. In Greek, same word. Your faith has made you well. Pistos faith. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Pistos. Pistuo. Believe. Have faith. Trust in me. So both of them are being called to exercise faith in Jesus. Okay, why am I focusing so hard on this? Here's why. Our church culture... Our um, kind of culture in the world tends to, tends to make faith this purely internal, personal thing. Sometimes uh, they talk about it like it's a subjective feeling, like it's just faith is like this warm, fuzzy feeling I have, like when I get a tingly sensation and we're all singing worship songs together or something. Maybe that's faith. Sometimes people talk about faith like it's a lifestyle choice, like being vegan or something, like, oh, I'm a person of faith, you know. Um, Sometimes, and very often in our church culture, and students come to me like this all the time, they think of faith as only belief, and only belief that you exercise at one particular point in your life. Well, I put my faith in Jesus, you know, when I was 12 and I went to this camp or whatever. And very often, um, you know, uh, faith in those contexts is talked about as, as like a sureness, 
right? Like, so the quality of faith is based on uh, how little doubt you have. You know, uh, students come to me sometimes and they've heard things growing up in churches like, you know, if you're 90%, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost, which is just evil that they get told that. So what does the experience of faith look like? Here's a definition of faith from uh, our friends in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 86, this is what they say. Faith, is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest on him alone for our salvation. We receive and rest on Jesus alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. I love that. I had to memorize that to graduate from seminary, and I'm so grateful that I did. So (laughs) we receive and we rest on Jesus alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So faith is about receiving something that's offered, right? Receiving Jesus specifically as he's offered to us in the good news of the gospel, Receiving him for forgiveness of sins. Receiving him for sanctification. Receiving him for patience. Receiving him for new life, for resurrection. Receiving Jesus. When you get Jesus, you get everything else wrapped up in with him, but you're receiving Jesus, not just his benefits. You're receiving Jesus and everything that flows out of him. Obedience to him. Trials that come from being connected with him. All the glory all the suffering, all the exaltation, all the humiliation, everything that comes from being united to Jesus, that's what we get when we exercise saving faith in Jesus because we're connected to him. But it's believing in Jesus and grabbing him in the face of alternative offers. So where do we see some alternative offers here? Well, you know, with, with, with Jairus, it's pretty clear there's an alternative gospel report. <laughs> There's this bad news report, right? That the people come from the house and they say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's a lost cause. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Now, those are two competing narratives. In that moment, Jairus has a choice. Who am I going to believe? Which report am I going to receive? Which report am I going to rest on? What am, what am I going to do? And in the moment, he exercises faith because he says, I'm going to believe Jesus in spite of what everyone else says. And what does that mean for Jairus? I mean, what does that cost him? I mean, he's an important guy. He's used to being in control. And even when he was asking, you know, Jesus for help, he was kind of exercising a little bit of control. He's like, well, I'm a religiously connected person. I'm going to figure out what Jesus's, you know, travel itinerary is. So I'm going to get over there. And, And so... Even if he had brought Jesus to the house, it would have been still like, you know, Jairus is making stuff happen. How many of us dads are like that? Like we're, we're still like making stuff happen for our family. But here's what happens. Jesus says, all right, Jairus, you follow me back to your house. And Jairus has to risk being humiliated in front of the crowd, in front of his family, in front of these mourners. What if Jesus isn't who he says he is? And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't listen to that voice inside of you 
listen to my voice. Jairus, I'm holding out myself to you for salvation, for healing for your daughter, for salvation for your family, for salvation for you, from having to be in control of everything, from having to be the one who makes everything right. Will you listen? Will you trust me? And Jairus, praise God, follows Jesus. He listens to Jesus. Now, what about the woman? I, I really do think there's something in that moment, in that silence where she's at the edge of the crowd and Jesus is looking around going, who was it that touched me? Who was it that touched me? I think that to me is the place where her faith is being tested at the sticking point. That's the place where she has to have like courage faith. And the reason is this. For 12 years, she has believed that God hates her that God is punishing her, that God has cursed her. And you know this. I mean, this happens all the time, doesn't it? You know, something bad happens in your life. Some circumstance happens. You, you stub your toe, you know, or it's, it's raining when you want to go play golf or something like that. And you think, God, you're getting back at me because of that thing I said, you know, in, in traffic. I don't mean to make light of it. We do this all the time. We think, I know why this is happening. God doesn't like me. God's punishing me. God is relating to me in judgment, in wrath. God is um, paying my sins back to me right now. Now, if he really was paying your sins back to you, I mean, that would be quite a thing. Because what our sins deserve is more than just a, a stubbed toe. Or rained out, you know, tea time. But in that moment, she has had this narrative inside her head which says, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. And Jesus is saying, will you expose yourself? Will you tell your story? And in that moment, she has to say, do I actually believe that God likes me? Do I actually believe that this man who now I know really is God, really is powerful, really is the Messiah, that he's not just powerful, but he's also loving. And so she steps out and she receives Jesus as he is offered to her, receives his offer of love. And he blesses her with a benediction. Remember what he says? Daughter. How long has it been since she's heard those words? Since she's been called daughter? At least 12 years. I bet it never felt like that before. A rejection of Jesus' offer, his invitation there, it wouldn't have just been disobedience. It would have been a lack of faith. Because faith is messy. I mean, faith is this struggling thing. You know, at the moment, you know what faith feels like? It feels like repentance. It feels like a turning away from alternative offers and turning toward Jesus. And that's why repentance and faith are always linked in the Bible. What faith feels like is it feels like I'm struggling, but I'm moving towards you, God. I'm going to believe what you say. Um, okay, this summer I was watching uh, that movie Annie, <laughs> Little Orphan Annie, the old one, uh, with my daughter Hattie, who's six years old. And there's this scene right when she first comes into Daddy Warbucks' mansion, 
if you've seen the movie, you, you remember this, uh, you know, she's been living in squalor in this orphanage where they're just, you know, like scrubbing the floors all the time. They're having to do all this work for Miss Hattigan. And th- these kids like work like slaves in this orphanage. And so she comes in to the mansion and she sees all the servants around and she walks in and she's like, wow, this is a real swell place. And so she, she grabs a bucket and she grabs a sponge And she starts scrubbing the stairs because that's what she's used to. And all the servants are like, what are you doing? And um, the kind woman that's brought her in, she she grabs the bucket from her. She grabs the sponge. And uh, she says, you don't need to do that. You're you're our guest here. And and Annie says this, how am I going to earn my keep? And they're all like, you. You don't get to earn your keep. You're a child. Like, we love you. We just want you to be here. I saw that. I'm sitting with my daughter. Even now, I can't tell you about it because I was watching it, and I'm bawling. Like, tears are rolling, like ugly crying. And my daughter looks over at me, and she's like, are you okay, Dad? I'm like, I know. It's so beautiful. And the reason is this. I don't know if you're like me. It is so easy to come to Jesus, believing in grace, and then to go through the rest of your life thinking, well, now I have to earn my keep. The experience of faith looks like believing you really are a child of God. You really are loved. And the only person who could have earned your place at his table already earned it for you, and his name was Jesus. He lived a perfect life in your place. And now he offers us adoption as sons and daughters. The exercise of faith means believing that offer of forgiveness and love and salvation, of laying down all kinds of attempts to earn our keep in God's house and to come to Jesus like little children asking abundantly more than we think we deserve because Jesus has done abundantly more to earn it for us in our place. So I just wonder for you, what what do you need from Jesus? Forgiveness, patience, strength. Is it in your life? Is 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 it in the life of someone in your family or in your neighborhood? Will you come to him boldly? Will you ask big things of our big and our generous God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, because you are great and a generous God, we want to come to you. Um, we want to approach you boldly. Believing what you say about us and laying down all of our own pretensions of deserving. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the faith and to turn towards you, uh, to trust you, to believe what you say about us in spite of the voices inside our heads that say, um, don't come to him, don't ask. Lord Jesus, would you give free, full forgiveness to all those here who need it? Lord, would you you refresh weary souls with new hope, with new faith, with new peace, with new joy, resting in their union with you? Ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.